And for the Tom Sumner program. The Tom Sumner program is a live variety show with music, comedy, and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! <laughs> I love it in Flint. You're very astute, Tom. Have an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor-comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. The second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk this hour about um, a new book, The Fight for Free Speech, that looks at uh, ten cases that define our First Amendment freedoms. And who better to author such a book than the uh, legal counsel for ABC News, Ian Rosenberg. He joins me by phone. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Tom. Um, Ian, uh, what made you want to write this this book? Was there something that happened in your role as legal counsel for ABC News that <laughs> made you want to dig into this? Well, actually, it was more of a, a personal uh, reason that started it off. You know, around the time of the uh, shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, I was talking to my two kids who at the time were ages 12 and 10, who became very serious um, when they were asking about what would happen if they participated in the national school walkout protests. You know, could they be punished? Would it affect, you know, their middle school applications? Um, and I started realizing that even though I'd been a media lawyer for over 20 years, that I was able to have practical conversations with my kids um, about the meaning of free speech law and to be able to actually answer questions um, pretty clearly that you can condense wisdom without dumbing it down. So, um, you know, m- my day job is to talk to smart people, journalists, anchors, producers, um, all day, um, none of whom are lawyers, 
um, and to try and convey complicated First Amendment concepts. So I feel like this book is a combination of speaking to both my children and to smart non-lawyers to try and create a user's guide to free speech. Is um, does, free sp- does free speech have to be true to be protected? Uh, that's a good question, and the answer is no. Um, falsity is one of the reasons why sometimes uh, speech can be restricted, for example, in the libel context. Um, but just purely false um, speech uh, is, in fact, protected uh, by the Supreme Court and by the First Amendment. There's the Stolen Valor Act case where um, a law that was created to prevent people from lying about their military record uh, or lying and claiming that they had a military record when they didn't have one um, was struck down by the Supreme Court um, because the belief is that uh, just uh, uh, the fact that something is inaccurate or even a lie does not mean that we should restrict it. The solution for false speech is more speech. And, you know, it, it, it occurred to me that the, the classic example that people use for when free speech might not be allowable is the, uh, the, the classic uh, yelling fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire. Um, does, does that really exist as a, uh, um, that, it, that it doesn't, uh, it's not protected by... Well, I think, I think you're lighting on uh, exactly the right issue there. Yes, whenever anyone wants to restrict speech, they always bring up, well, you can't cry a fire in a crowded theater. Um, but they're actually taking out two of the key elements that Justice Holmes um, had in that statement when he wrote it, um, and you brought up one of them. You can't cry fire falsely in a crowded theater and cause a panic. Because, of course, uh-huh. if you're crying the fire in a crowded theater when there's a fire, you should get a medal. You shouldn't be restricted. And even if you cry it falsely, you smell smoke, but there's no fire. It turned out to be the popcorn burning, um, you know, and nobody reacts in any dangerous way. That speech shouldn't be restricted either. So one of the things I say uh, in my book is that if you learn nothing else from my book, please use the uh, fire analogy correctly in the future. It's really just always tossed out, almost always inaccurately, as a way to restrict speech. And yes, we can restrict speech in some contexts, and falsity and harm are really the key criteria for, for thinking about those few times when we need to restrict speech. But the harm then has to be present. That's right. Um, so in the fire analogy, um, it, it is that there has to be a panic, um, and there's there's some you know version of that in most First Amendment uh, guidance from the court that there, that there has to be actual harm or imminent harm. It depends on the case, but there uh, just that the mere prospect of harm in the future or some undefined worry about harm is not enough. Uh, in almost any circumstances, to restrict speech. You know, we've been talking an awful lot since this past summer with the uh, the protests that went on around the country, and um, and and of course more recently, uh, earlier this month, the breach at the Capitol. Um, these these big mass events. Um, free speech often comes up. 
are these acts, even if they become seditious, protected? Well, I, I think it's important to draw a clear distinction between peaceful protest and violence. There is no First Amendment protection, protections for violent uh, actions, even if they are in the context of uh, a protest. There is no First Amendment protections for trespass, even again, if they are in the context of protests. So the almost entirely peaceful um, Black Lives Matter protests are, are very different than what the incident, uh, the, the riot um, and um, sedition that we had in the Capitol. However, um, the, the gathering of people to speak um, when they were listening to President Trump and other speakers, that, that speech um, and that gathering um, was certainly protected um, by uh, the First Amendment. What what changed um, was when there was both the movement and the trespassing and then the violence, but also we get to the question of incitement. And incitement, whether Trump's or other speakers' words were inciting violence, is a limit on speech. And the test is whether it was directed to and likely to cause imminent breach of the law. And so I think it's, this is a very unusual circumstances, and normally the incitement test is a very difficult one to meet. But I do believe that Trump's words could be found to be inciting um, because there was a direction um, to uh, break the law and there was an imminent likelihood of that occurring. In fact, it, it did occur. You know, the media gets um, a, a lot of uh, criticism for being too, um, too partisan, um, whether, whether you want to say CNN's on the left or Fox is on the right or, or you know, the, quote, liberal media. Um, are there guidelines for the media and their participation in events that unfold? Uh, well, certainly. And, you know, I, I'm not um, I'm not objective. I, I work for <clears throat> the, the media. But I can say that from my experience that whatever personal political beliefs um, journalists may have, that at the major news organizations like ABC News and other places, that there is an enormous effort to uh, report the straight ahead facts and to not have um, any political slant take over their reporting. Now, that's different, obviously, at Fox and MSNBC, which mix sort of news and opinion. But um, I think that one of the reasons I wrote this book is because I wanted, I, mean, I think that the, one of the greatest threats to um, our First Amendment protections today is the demonization, the false demonization of the press, the idea that they are the enemy of the people, which I don't think anything could be further from the truth, and the misperception that the media can lie and get away with it. And that is also just not an accurate uh, discussion of or, or description of our current libel law, and it's, it's one of my chapters in the book, is explaining how, how libel law really works. What's the difference between fake news and just getting it wrong? That's an interesting question. Um, you know, I, I have always tried to avoid the term fake news um, because it's 
been created as a way to uh, deny truth and deny factual reporting um, by the Trump administration largely. Um, but, you know, reporters can get things wrong, um, but they can't turn a blind eye to the truth uh, and they can't intentionally lie. That is a, a quick summary of our libel standard. Um, and so this perception that, you know, as Trump has claimed, that the media can lie and get away with it and there's nothing we can do uh, is absolutely false. Um, in fact, part of my job is, is making sure um, that um, ABC News isn't sued uh, for libel or other issues. So the, the news media takes these kind of concerns, uh, these kind of issues very seriously. Um, and, um, you know, the idea of fake news or, or a mistake um, may happen, um, but it is not intentional. Um, and if it is intentional, um, then um, the media can be held accountable. And and I I brought that up because I was talking. Um, I, I, well, first I, I wanted to just point out the 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 old flaw that that people used to point to when newspapers were king, and um, you could get it wrong on the front page and three days later correct it on the back page. Well, uh, you know, I've never worked in the newspaper business. You know, there, there is a concern that um, sometimes uh, it's difficult for the truth to catch up with a falsehood. And that, that concern is a real one and all the more present in our, you know, hyper-fast um, social media age of today. Uh, however, um, that's, that's not um, the way retractions normally work um, uh, in, the, in the media age. Um, many times retractions have to occur in the same, um, you know, broadcast or, or time frame um, in which the original mistake would uh, have occurred or a clarification needs to come at that time. So um, no correction or clarification necessarily solves every problem. But um, but I think it's an inaccurate uh, misconception among among many people that um, that we can that the media can sort of bury any. Uh, retraction, um, you know, somewhere where no one will see it. I, I don't believe that's the way uh, the media uh, works in, in most circumstances. Um, I, I, I want to drill down on this some more. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the social media aspect and how that influences news and the rush to news. And, and I want to talk about that some more, but I also want to talk about uh, the book and, and the uh, process that you used to put the book together, how you selected the cases that you uh, outline in the book and, and talk about in the book. Uh, my guest is um, Ian Rosenberg. He's legal counsel for ABC News and the author of a new book called The Fight for Free Speech. And uh, we're going to talk about First Amendment rights and more with, uh, with Ian. But first, if you're listening to us on WFO, well, I was going to ask, I'm, I'm assuming, Ian, that you'll stick around for a few minutes so we can talk some more. Absolutely. This is, this is fun. Thanks. Great. Um, 
Anyway, if you're listening to us on WFOV 92.1 LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in edgewise or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll return and talk some more about free speech with Ian Rosenberg. We'll be right back. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19, where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. 
This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Tom Summer. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation now with um, the legal counsel for ABC News and author of a new book called The Fight for Free Speech. Uh, Ian Rosenberg joins me by phone. Ian, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through that. My pleasure. It's a great conversation. Um, just before the break, we, we started touching on this this notion about when news gets it wrong. And I had a, a, a several interviews, actually, with a, a former FBI profiler um, who cautioned that the initial news reports about big events, uh, mass shootings and, and uh, uh, so on, were almost always wrong. That because they didn't have in their effort to get the news out fast, they didn't have a chance to confirm what kinds of weapons were used, how many people were shot, um, you know, how many shooters there were, and so a lot of the details are, if not incomplete, they're they're just wrong. Um, recently, I, I saw somebody come on with uh, breaking news that there'd been an explosion in Nashville. That's all they had. Well, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I don't know what incidents he's specifically referring to, but I, I would strongly uh, and respectfully disagree uh, with that point. Uh, I, I do not believe um, that even in the fast-paced context of, of a truly breaking story or an emergency that most of the details are wrong. And I think, you know, mainstream news organizations uh, try very, um, very hard to get it right and um, mostly do. And when they don't know, uh, don't report on things. I think the few circumstances when um, mistakes are made, um, those are are clarified or or, um, corrected, you know, quite promptly. Uh, But I definitely think um, that is not even anecdotally uh, true and, and certainly not part of my experience. But it goes back again um, to the point I, I was making earlier with you that there is this perception that the media can get away with anything um, and that be- somehow because of the First Amendment, they are entirely protected. Uh, but that's not true. Um, the media can be sued for libel. Um, and the, the standard, uh, to summarize as I do in my book, is that if the media knew the statement they were making was false or had a reckless disregard for the truth, they can be sued for libel. And, you know, being sued for libel means that there are damages involved. And so if it was the case that there were, you know, egregious errors happening on a a frequent basis, uh, I think you would see a lot more um, 
people uh, eagerly um, suing the media um, to try and receive the damages they would be entitled to if, if there was such um, egregious mistakes. So, um, you know, every person has their own perception of um, accuracy. Um, but from my perspective, um, I, I do not believe that the media makes those kind of mistakes on, on any kind of regular basis. Well, I can't. I, um just wanted to stay with this for another uh, another moment or so um, because I, I'm just what constitutes breaking news anymore well right I mean I, I, not to <laughs> criticize CNN but but the term breaking seems to be um, on their uh, crawl you know 24 hours a day so um, but uh, so you know breaking news is no legal term um, whatever happened to our top story right <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, tragically, I, I think that the um, the historical uh, shift happened after 9-11. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously that was a horrific breaking news story. And, and I think that after that, um, that there became a, especially in, in cable news, there became a trend of we always need to be breaking, otherwise people won't stay with us. So, you know, the, you know, everyone, um, uh, I, I think, you know, sometimes is susceptible to overhyping um, the importance of a story. But um, and that's and that's not a legal term. Um, but uh, I do believe when I was referring to, you know, the, the criticism that you said one of your um, guests had posed, um, you know, there is a greater potential for a story that's happening right at the time the broadcast or the paper is um, going online or going on air, um, you know, a, a, a fire, uh, a police standoff, um, some kind of other uh, significant, um, you know, criminal um, emergency. Um, so, you know, that's truly breaking when, when the information is not fully in um, at the time of the reporting. You know, doing a, a piece on the Trump presidency right now is, is no longer breaking news. Um, you know, talking about um, impeachment um, is, is certainly unfolding every day. It might not be happening with the urgency of uh, a fire, but it, it is still a breaking story. The the other criticism that that people have about the media, and I want to be careful about how I ask this, Ian, because I'm hoping to convince you to uh, uh, drop a line to George Stephanopoulos that I'd like him to be a guest on the show sometime. Uh, <laughs> and and I don't I don't want to get you in any trouble that would cause me trouble. But um, it, the the criticism is that media most of the mass media or it's been called the mainstream media um i've heard it called lamestream media but um the criticism is that it is so corporately owned and managed that it's more about the money than the news itself and i've even heard that you know from uh usually retired news people um but is is there a concern about that uh, about the objectivity of corporately owned media outlets uh you know that's that's a interesting complicated question and i i think that the short answer is that the mainstream media 
strive every day to be reporting the information that people want to hear. So, yes, um, they are businesses that need to, um, you know, generate ad revenue just like any other um, business um, and they need to survive. But but generally, the news media is a um, is an economically um, losing um, proposition. Um, you know, uh, people get into um, the media and reporting because they want to tell stories. Um, news organizations that are owned by conglomerates um, feel that it's part of their public interest obligation uh, to continue putting forward uh, the news media as a service for their communities and as part of their corporate work. So I, I don't believe that um, uh, in general that the mainstream uh, media is largely conflicted by the fact that, that there is corporate ownership. Uh, I don't want to sound overly naive, but I do believe um, doesn't mean that there's never a, uh, appropriate to raise um, uh, free speech concerns about um, some uh, company's potential um, bias, and that, that should be called uh, out. Um, but I don't believe it is as widespread as the popular uh, conception is. Um, I, I don't believe that they're um, thinking about profits or, um, or corporate um, uh, entities. Uh, I think they are really working hard to try and tell the stories that people need to hear. And I, I think that one of the reasons I want, uh, wanted to write this book was as a um, way for people to better understand how our free press rights work and how vital they are to preserving our democracy. Let's let's talk about the uh, the book a little bit in the the fight for free speech. How did you yeah. decide on the ten cases you were going to use as examples? Um, well, so I was the concept of the book is that I take all of First Amendment law um, and I distill it down to ten crucial. First Amendment, free speech, and free press cases. And that what I'm trying to do is begin every chapter with focusing on a contemporary free speech question, from student walkouts uh, for gun safety to Samantha Bee cursing out Ivanka Trump, from Nazis marching in Charlottesville to the potential muting of adult film star Stormy Daniels. And then I identify and unpack and tell the story of the Supreme Court case that actually answers those questions. So I wanted um, contemporary issues that could be answered by a single case with a clear answer. And I start um, in 1919 um, with the case that created the marketplace of ideas metaphor that really re redefined our modern free speech notions. And I go all the way to the first significant social media case that the court addressed in 2017. And I think all these stories together, you can read them individually, but if you read them chronologically, they create a practical framework for understanding where our free speech protections originated and how they can develop in the future. I also picked these cases because there are some amazing characters in these stories, unlikely pioneers, certainly not all heroes. Uh, who went before us, and uh, I think their journeys to vindicate their free speech rights really illuminate our free speech freedoms today. And, and what about free speech versus censorship versus community standards? Uh, well, that's a big question. Um, so censorship needs to involve, people use the censorship uh, term a lot, um, very casually, but uh, but from a free speech and First Amendment perspective, it really needs to involve government action. 
Um, so um, Twitter, um, you know, stopping uh, President Trump from speaking um, is not censorship. Uh, and I'm happy to talk about that more, um, you know, uh, and, and go on from there, because I think it answers uh, your question about, you know, the line between community um, standards and uh, restricting speech and, and what the First Amendment allows. Are there community standards anymore? Well, uh, obscenity and uh, uh, law, which is not something I, I, I discuss in the book, but um, still takes into, uh, um, uh, into account contemporary uh, community standards, and they do mean the community. They don't mean some kind of national standard. Um, I, I think that we are. I think that the, the Internet has created um, a more, um, and people's access to social media has created um, more of a national community standard than a local one. Um, I'm often telling uh, stories to my kids uh, that when you know I was a teenager, we couldn't get that because there was no in internet, or we couldn't read that, or we couldn't find that book, um, and would have no access it, uh, to it. So I, I, I grew up in Wisconsin, and uh, I, I certainly think that there was a difference between growing up in Wisconsin and the community standards in Wisconsin than uh, family I had in New York City. But I, you know, I think that's perhaps changing today. Um, uh, and I, I think we are um, facing a sort of more national uh, community standard. But but look at our look at our elections um, that just happened. We we are certainly um, a country where different states have very different points of view um, than um, than each other, and then for example, the national popular vote. In in selecting the. Uh the the cases the 10 cases that you use to map out uh free speech in in the book the fight for free speech um how many did you set aside how many did you go through to whittle it down to 10 ah um well uh you know, some of them, I think, um, are you know, the hallmarks uh, of First Amendment law. Um, you know, I, I, I talk about the Abrams decision, which gave us the marketplace of ideas. That's the first case uh, in the book. You, you have to um, include that. I talk about the libel standard that came out of the civil rights movement um, in Sullivan. So I talk about that. And then much more contemporary. The Supreme Court's only major discussion of social media didn't come until uh, 2017. That's Packingham. There are a lot of important other issues um, that uh, I don't uh, address um, because often because one case didn't define the law. It was a series of cases that shifted over time. Uh, and I really wanted to be able to show to people that you can get a very strong handle on First Amendment law um, without having to be a lawyer, uh, without having to go to law school, without having to read a textbook. Um, these are entertaining stories that give you a very strong overview uh, of the First Amendment, free speech and free press rights that we have today. Um, you know, I, there's a story in law school that you are learning um, the uh, the law like it is a seamless web and the idea is that every thread is important and that you must study everything because otherwise um you know the tapestry unravels but i say that this book is much more like buying a rug at ikea um it's going to do the job just as well it's going to cover the topics you need uh, and it's much cheaper and quicker so i had to let some uh, uh stories um and cases um go but uh, but i think this is really 
the, the crash course that people need to understand their First Amendment rights today. You know, it's it's interesting when you talk about uh, about free speech and about the media responsibility and I, and I want to talk some more about Twitter's decision to uh, to ban uh, at the time the president of the United States yeah um, which is is pretty significant but it it's always been incumbent on the media to sort of police itself and you know, I remember at at one of your uh, competitors at NBC News back in the days of Huntley and Brinkley, watching watching that show. And at at that time, journalists really tried to give just the facts and and tell just what people needed to know um, that was in the news. But just to be sure, they had a Republican and a Democrat. Um, is is it incumbent on social media to to now police themselves and and consider what happens when it's completely unregulated? Well, let there's a lot of um, important. Uh, parts to your question there. Let's start with, I think... I just the, wanted to give clear, you something to work with, Ian. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's, uh, it, it, they're, they're really pressing issues, and I think um, that part of what this book tries to do, and, and part of the difficulty is, people have questions like, what's going on with free speech and Twitter? And then, you know, that's what they, they want to know. And, and so, but there's a lot of parts to that question. So let me, let me start with the, the easiest part, um, which is about, you know, did Twitter violate the First Amendment in any way by banning former President Trump when he was president um, from speaking on the platform? And this is a very clear answer. No, they in no way violated uh, the First Amendment in doing so. And now let me un- explain why, as I was alluding to before. So all social media platforms are private entities. And so they do not have to abide by the First Amendment. You know, remember, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So that applies to both the federal government and the states, but not private companies. So Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, what have you, they're not government actors. They can restrict people's speech all they want. They can kick people off their platforms like Trump. They can restrict speech based on its message, or they can refuse to accept ads from people they don't uh, like. Uh, And these choices represent editorial decisions that reflect the free speech rights of the social media companies themselves. So that might raise political issues like you're referring to about who's policing them, but they are not going to be found by courts to be unconstitutional violations of the First Amendment. So, you know, in short, the government actors have to follow the First Amendment, but private companies and private individuals don't. that's, That's sort of part one. Does that apply as well to let's just for example abc news uh so yeah i mean ab- absolutely abc news nbc news any um news organization um has a right uh to make editorial decisions um that re- represent their free speech rights um and those decisions um are not violations of people's first amendment rights you know i think um you know, the most contemporary example is Josh Hawley, the uh, Missouri senator, um, 
who you know claimed that there was some violation of his free speech rights um, when Simon and Schuster uh, dropped um, his book that was in the works um, because of his uh, objection to Biden's uh, certification and um, alleged involvement in the uh, Capitol riots. Um, and you know, Josh Hawley, clerk for uh, Chief Justice Roberts, he knows better. He is clearly misleading the American public when he says there's a First Amendment violation there. Simon and Schuster had no First Amendment obligation to um, publish anyone's book. My book isn't being published against, by Simon and Schuster. I don't have a First Amendment claim uh, against them. Um, and, you know, freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. Nobody has a right to be on any individual platform um, unless it is somehow a government uh, entity or a, a government-sponsored entity. So um, there is no First Amendment violation when Simon Schuster chooses uh, to, um, to drop a book, um, and there is no uh, First Amendment uh, violation when the media make editorial decisions. And, and I wanted, so that's part one, but I, I then want to add part two, which is, and that's a good thing. You know, we don't want to be in a, a totalitarian country like China where the government can force publishers to post the government's approved message. Um, you know, I, I think people can understand lots of reasons why that's a good thing. But, but the key one, uh, the key question is who decides, you know, did, um, did people who identify as Democrats um, want the Trump administration uh, deciding who the media, um, uh, what it should be speaking to and what kind of messages that the media uh, should be putting out? I don't think so. And do many Republicans today want the Biden administration to be in charge of that? Again, I, I, I don't think so. So um, on the one hand, there's this, this pent up French frustration that's very understandable because there are significant problems on social media today. But the, the place to start is not, is this a violation of the First Amendment? Uh, the place to start is, you know, how do we as a community, um, you know, speak out um, in response to the concerns we see on social media and hope to affect change. So that is, um, that is the, the next stage and I think the evolution of social media. How does the, the First Amendment apply to individuals versus uh, public media versus, say, corporations and advertising? And I'm thinking about uh, maybe cases where, where businesses make false claims or false advertising. Right. Well, um, although businesses um, do have commercial speech rights, um, that um, you are absolutely right that we do have uh, regulations um, regarding, um, you know, uh, accuracy in um, in product descriptions or in advertisements. Um, so, uh, you know, people sometimes think that like. Uh, that there are no restrictions on speech in our uh, society. And, and that's not true. There are, there are all kinds of everyday restrictions and, and you point out one of them, you know, um, flagrantly false claims, not just puffery. This is the best, but, but, you know, accuracy fact-based claims made by, um, by companies um, can be uh, addressed in a number of ways by regulation, by agencies, um, by um, the edit, uh, by the uh, advertising teams that evaluate ads before they go on the air. Um, so corporations do have speech rights, um, but uh, they are are more likely to be restricted uh, in general than our individual rights. Ian, I have to take another break here. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can? Uh 
kind of kind of wrap up our conversation in the next segment? Absolutely. It would be my pleasure to keep on talking. Excellent. My guest is uh, Ian Rosenberg. He's legal counsel for ABC News and the author of a new book called The Fight for Free Speech. We're going to let our broadcast partners at 92.1 FM, Our Voices Radio, squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do uh, um, with their free speech rights when we go to break. Um, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll return with more from Ian Rosenberg right after this. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. 
The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, we wrap things up during uh, this segment with our conversation with. Uh, the legal counsel for ABC News and the author of a new book called The Fight for Free Speech, Ian Rosenberg. Ian, welcome, and thanks for uh, sticking around. My pleasure. Good to keep talking with you. Um, something that occurred to me when we were talking during the last segment, and uh, I'm not sure how else to ask this, um, did you have to do a lot of research uh, for this book, or are you a walking uh, encyclopedia of free speech-related uh, law and case law? <laughs> well, I, I've been a media law uh, media lawyer for over twenty years, but um, I did uh, so. I, you know, I knew what I wanted to be talking about. Um, I also teach a media law class um, at Brooklyn College to um, television and radio graduate students. So another example of trying to explain what I know about free speech and, and free press law to smart people who aren't lawyers. But nonetheless, um, what I was really did a lot of research on reading over, you know, probably over 100 books um, is the stories behind the cases. And that's what's different about my books and some of the um, more academic texts that come out. I really uh, wanted to tell who the people were who um, fought for their free speech rights why um, did they insist on going all the way up to the Supreme Court and how did it change their lives? And that's not something you actually learn about in law school. In law school, you learn, um, and in your, uh, my professional life, you're really talking about what is the rule of law and, and, and how is it applied. Um, but in this book, I really also wanted to get into the, the personal stories of uh, people behind our current free speech rights today, whether they're the Barnett um, uh, siblings who um, define our um, right not to speak um, and um, really impact Colin Kaepernick and the Take a Knee controversy, or Mary Beth Tinker, um, a 13-year-old uh, middle school student whose uh, protest armband um, during the Vietnam War changed um, and expanded the rights for student speech. So yeah, I, I really dug into their stories and um, it was fascinating. And then uh, condense them um, for everyone to be able to uh, read and understand easily. Did Larry Flint make it into the book? Absolutely. The <laughs> fight between um, the fight between uh, Larry Flint and uh, the Reverend Falwell is one of the great cataclysmic battles of all of uh, free speech law, uh, and what it tells us about uh, the power of parody um, and uh, the right to um, to offend um, even in an outrageous way in the context of parody and what that means um, for Saturday Night Live today 
um, is an incredible uh, story, truly, uh, to kind of apocalyptic figures. Um, and, and and I was was tempted to bring up, um, is it Dana Brash? I'm, I'm not sure if I have that name right. Um, from CNN when she referred to the uh, one of the Trump-Biden debates as a shit show. Um, uh, well, I I don't talk about that, but I but I do indeed um, talk about um, the right to curse or the lack of a right to curse on broadcast television and radio. Uh, I tell the uh, the contemporary story of Samantha Bee uh, cursing out and using the c word about Ivanka Trump, um, and uh, and how George Carlin's seven dirty words case really continues to define what can be said on broadcast television. So, yes, if you if you're, have questions about uh, who and when can you curse on TV, this is also the book for you. <laughs> Excellent. Um, is there a significant difference between news and propaganda? I mean, one that's definable? Interesting. Uh, you know, yes. I, I, I think, you know, propaganda is uh, is opinion um, at its best or, you know, lies at its worst that is seeking to um, uh, convince or put forward a political Is it the uh, difference between news and persuasion? Well, you know, that's an interesting um, way of looking at it. I I hope that news is persuasive. I mean, you know, I think one of the things that Dr. Fauci talks about is, you know, it, uh, recently, is, isn't it refreshing that um, we're going to be able to talk about facts? I think that the facts um, that we, you know, that come from Dr. Fauci um, about the, uh, and others about the COVID crisis that we're facing um, are persuasive. Um, and so I don't want us to give up on the power of truth. I don't want us to give up on the ability for news to persuade but what I would say is the difference is that propaganda is based um, solely on political goals where, you know, news reporting as it comes um, most of the time from the mainstream media is uh, about truth and about seeking um, uh, accuracy. And then, of course, the hope that um, that that may uh, lead to a more informed citizenry and may or may not lead to change, but um, but not necessarily from a, a political goal. And I, I guess we're kind of getting close to the end of our time. It, it's and it's gone so fast because this is a fascinating conversation, especially to me because um, I am a collector of speeches and and I'm fascinated by everything to do with uh, with free speech. Um, but I, I I did have a question I wanted to to end with, and I and I. It's gone completely out of my, out of my head, Ian. But um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about what we've been talking about. Obviously, the book, the fight for free speech, is a good place to start. But where can people find out more about uh, about Ian and your work, past, present, and future? Do you have a website? I do indeed. Thank you. It's called uh, thefightforfreespeech.com. Uh, uh, so you can find out more about me and the book and uh, a series of uh, virtual public talks I'll be doing in connection with the book um, that I think if you've enjoyed this conversation, we'll get um, even more in depth um, on some of these virtual talks I'm doing with bookstores um, and other community uh, events. Um, and the book, uh, The Fight for Free Speech, is available wherever books are sold. 
uh, from Amazon, of course, or hopefully from your local indie bookshop um, in Flint. Um, and, you know, the last thing I just want to say is, uh, you know, I think we are facing a moment where as President Biden has called it, you know, democracy is fragile. And uh, I do not think that there is anything more vital to preserving our democracy today than understanding the free speech rights that we have. And in some cases, the free speech, uh, you know, issues and freedoms that need to evolve. And so I wrote the fight for free speech to give people a user's guide for understanding our free speech freedoms today. And I do believe that it's also the best way to keep democracy alive is for the fight for free speech to be a grassroots activity that people practice every day. And if you read this book, I think you'll be um, have the knowledge and confidence you need to speak freely and to engage in these important discussions that you bring up today. Well, Ian, thanks so much for spending this hour with me. I appreciate it. And uh, keep up the fight. Indeed. Thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure. Take care. That was Ian Rosenberg, legal counsel for ABC News and author of a new book called The Fight for Free Speech. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Across my head 
Hardware says and I had a cup Looking up, I noticed I was late Grab my coat, grab my hat Made the books and seconds flat Mama says and I had a smoke Somebody spoke and I went into a dream Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 